Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, and thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. I don't know what happened to our, our little sound music there. There we go. There we go. thunderstorm last night, so I think that might be messing around with our, our radio waves and our sound waves and all that kind of stuff, but thank you for joining us. Thank you for uh, listening to Three Women, Three Ways, or the show that kind of tackles some of those difficult issues that uh, people don't often talk about, including things like abuse. And today we have with us a wonderful woman, an author and a uh, psycholo- psychologist or psychiatrist, Psychotherapist. Psychotherapist. And uh, she has worked in the area of domestic violence for quite some time, and she has also written several books, the most recent of which is But He Never Hit Me, The Devastating Cost of Non-Physical Abuse to Girls and Women. And her name is Dr. Jill A. Murray. Thank you for joining us, Jill. How are you this morning? I'm fine. Um, We are... uh, just very happy to have you with us, and uh, we want to talk about your book, and um, can you tell us what motivated you to write this book and to go into the field? You know, it's it's a kind of an interesting story. I was in uh, graduate school, and I was about ready to get my doctorate degree, and at my school, before you received your doctorate degree, you had to take a class called practicum, which meant that you go out into the into the world and you you really practice a little bit, and um, then you come back and you you share your cases or your difficulty or things like that with your professor and your classmates. And um, before I I went to graduate school, I was a stay-at-home mommy of um, twins, a boy and a girl. And, uh, and really loved that, but had always wanted to go in the psychology field, always wanted to be a psychologist. So I went back to school when, they, when I thought they were old enough. And um, so here I was about to get my, my doctorate degree. And um, I, I thought, what am I going to do for my practicum class? And I saw a notice on our school bulletin board about being an intern at a domestic violence shelter. And I thought, hmm, domestic violence, I wonder what that is. It sounds interesting. I don't really know what it is. I sort of know the concept of it. It's like when women get beat up and stuff and, you know, they have a broken jaw and they have a black eye and broken arms and stuff like that. Wow, that might be sort of interesting. So uh, I went to the place where they were uh, having the the interviews for this and I, I interviewed and um, a lot of people interviewed for this, Heather, and I, I don't know exactly, well, I didn't know at the time why they why they chose me. Now I do, but uh, I, I got the job, and what I learned there from the women in the domestic violence shelter was that I came from a ridiculously abusive background, a ridiculously abusive childhood, um, physically abusive, sexually abusive, um, emotionally abusive, verbally abusive, just horrifying, horrifying. My father was the terrorist in our, our family and um, endured that for a lot of years, thinking that it was normal. It was my normal. And yep. so I, I worked in uh, in this field. I worked at the shelter for two and a half years, and I'm still involved in it and on the board of directors, and, um, and opened my private practice where I had a general practice but specialized in domestic violence. And and uh, actually, Oprah Winfrey told me to write my first book, which is called, which, uh, is called But I Love Him. And uh, then she told me to write a second book. So, you know, when Oprah Winfrey tells you to write a book, you know, you run home and <laughs> open your laptop. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you go home and fire up the typewriter. <laughs> there you go. There you go. She was yeah. a very godmother. And um, I started giving a lot of presentations all around the country on teen dating abuse, which was not talked about. But I, I learned that pretty much every single woman in the shelter, um, the 250 or so women that I had counseled, had started their abusive relationships, if you don't count home environments, and it always doesn't start there, when she was, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old. And, um, and so the, this third book, um, and I have a bunch of e-books as well, but this third published book, um, But He Never Hit Me, sort of grew out of all the experiences of the first and second book in my private practice and my presentations and, and the, the misnomers that people have about domestic violence. 
they, they tend to think that it's only those bruises that count um, as domestic violence or as abuse. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that you didn't realize that your family is abusive. I, I think that that's very typical of a lot of us. We All we know is what we grew up with. You know, that's, that's as you said, our normal. And then uh, when you get out of that environment uh, quite a bit and start looking around and start learning, you realize, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> that wasn't <laughs> that okay. That wasn't so, so normal. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, my, my kids always laugh at me because when they were growing up, I kept saying, you know, if something happened, I would go, this isn't normal. This isn't normal. <laughs> this was like I was always, what, what did they call that with the Mark Twain where you were always, they were always putting the stick in the water to measure how deep? Um, oh, it's it's right. like I, I mothered that way. You know, I <laughs> okay, is this normal? Okay. Yeah, I have right. to read about it to know. But, you know, I think this is normal. No, I'm pretty sure that's not normal. Um, that's and, so funny, uh, Heather, because that's, that's how... I learned to be a mother, too, is would other people consider this normal? Because I don't really, you know, from growing up in a not normal environment, I don't really know or didn't know what normal was supposed to look like. And sometimes I would ask myself, what would my mother do? And then do the opposite, you know? So, (laughs) you know, like, oh, this is okay. This this is probably right then, you know? um, And and I think a lot of us, a lot of us do that. You know, I I think the reason for things like the Cosby show and, you know, that was so popular and Leave it to Beaver and and Father Knows Best, you know, now I'm really dating myself, you know, when I was growing up. Um, is because so many of us didn't grow up in those households. We really pined for that kind of childhood, and and we thought, okay, well, this is what normal must look like in other people's houses, and, and yes. it sort of gave us some information. Yeah, uh, impossible to follow information, but <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I always wished that you know I could I could cook a pot roast wearing pearls and and short white gloves, you know, and it, it just didn't yes. work out for me that way. To say nothing of vacuuming the floor wearing high heels, but, you know. Oh, man, what an art. What a lost art. I think we should bring that back. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, well, I think we're probably in, in a similar generation because, you know, I, I grew up with those shows as well. And um, it was it was interesting to see this, but uh, for me, maybe I was a little uh, slower on the uptake than you, but for me I always thought, okay, that's the people in the box that live that way. The people who live in the big giant boxes like we do <laughs> don't live right. that way. Well, you know, that's, that's an interesting point. And, and I think, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking, wow, you know, the kids growing up now and the teenagers growing up now and, and young adults where we had a frame of reference that was a healthy frame of reference about what families are supposed to look like, I, I guess with air quotes around supposed to, um, the kids now grow up with reality TV which and seeing such dysfunctional families and such horrifying examples of relationships. I'm thinking that they think that's what normal is and that's what relationships are supposed to look like where there's a lot of drama and chaos and bad behavior and screaming at each other and pushing each other around and demoralizing and dehumanizing behaviors. And and I really think that that has contributed to the uptick in um, in teen dating violence because that's just a really poor example and role model of what relationships are supposed to look like. Yeah. And from what I've seen um, with the teen dating situation, uh, so many young girls don't acknowledge that it's an abusive relationship. Um, well, right. You know, when, they, when it's pointed out to them, it's just kind of like, yeah, well, you know, that's life. Um, right, because, uh, you know, the, the Kardashians are pushing each other around and using the F word, you know. I've never seen that. Their mother do they really each push other? each other around? Oh, my God! I've never seen Kardashians. Uh, do they really do pushing around? They, uh, you know, it's just the most horrifying example of a family. And, you know, and they, they, they spout that they love each other, love each other, but everybody on that show is just more horrible than the next. And, and the way that they treat each other, and the, I mean, the idea of, you know, that our kids look at this stuff and, and you really don't have to do anything. You're famous for being famous. I guess Paris Hilton must, must have been one of the first people who started that. But you really yeah. don't have to do anything. And, and And I forget how many 
tens of millions, you know, Kim Kardashian made last year. I think it was 81 million, something like that. And and I think, wow, you know, it's giving our kids such a poor example that you just have to be controversial or you just have to be slutty or, or you just have to do bad things or say bad things. You don't really have to work. And you don't really have to achieve, but people will give yeah. you, you know, this this the idolatry. It's just so horrible. I really worry about that generation. And it's so appearance based. I mean, even the mother is, uh, mm. from what I've read, is uh, focused on her appearance, even though she's what pushing sixty. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. which I mean, not that sixty-year-old women shouldn't be, uh, you know, shouldn't enjoy their appearances and you know do whatever they want that makes them comfortable. But you know, at a certain point, that's not the primary thing that you focus on. I mean, hopefully, at any point, that's not the primary thing that you focus on in life. Right, um, but but I think that that's what a lot of reality TV is is based on is based on um, external externalizing yourself instead of looking into yourself and and I think that you know a lot of times when we talk about relationships um and domestic violence also the appearance of what a relationship looks like may not be what's really going on inside the household or inside the relationship or in, indeed inside the person yeah huh. um it it's uh well, and I guess we can swing that right back to real life, to people who are in these kinds of situations, domestic violence. First of all, they don't necessarily recognize it as such unless there's hitting. Um, and I've talked with a lot of women who have been in terribly abusive homes who said, well, I wish he would just hit me. Then I know that it's abuse. You know, the, um, I hear I hear the exact same thing, Heather, which is such a sad statement that, you know, I... It, a lot of times these women are being told it's not as if I hit you, you know, stop crying or yep. stop, stop, stop saying that, uh, you know, you, you feel bad or you feel sad. It's not as if I hit you, you know, if, if you really want to see violence, you know, I can show you violence, you know, this kind of threatening or you're such a drama queen. Um, you know, I, I had a woman in my office recently who was detailing the, uh, the facts of, of her, her marriage. Um, and, it, they were just horrendous, just horrendous. And she was a very smart, very accomplished woman. And she said, so on a scale of 1 to 10, and I stopped her and I said, 93. And she wow. said, no, I, I meant like on a scale of 1 to 10, how abusive do you think my marriage is? And I said, no, I understood your question. A 93. Yeah. And she said, yeah. really? And her eyes got big and she said, I thought you were going to say maybe a 3 or a 4. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the, the facts of, of this case, including physical violence, but maybe physical violence that other people wouldn't consider physical, you know, grabbing her hair or or putting her up against a wall. But he never, you know, he, he never broke her jaw. You know, he, he yep. restrained her by the upper arms. He shook her a little bit. You know, he, he grabbed her ponytail. You know, he threw a yep. remote control that just missed her head. and But she never had bruises. You know, because he was too smart for that. And she really didn't think she was in an abusive relationship. She just thought she was crazy. Yeah, because, of course, somebody's there telling her she's crazy and overreacting. Right. uh, it, it, It can be such a devastating thing for a woman to live through because not only is she living through that and doubting herself and her own perceptions, she's also not getting any kind of acknowledgement that what she's living through is abuse. And right. that can be really tough, you know, uh, to to be going through something that you know is just so horrible, and yet you don't think it fits the category of abuse. Nobody does. Um, and so when you go to try and talk with somebody, your minister or your family, you know, you're getting uh, so many women are being told, well, did he hit you? No. Well, you know, marriage is work. You have to work. Marriage is compromise. Well, right. maybe so, but... Not if you're being abused, it's not. <laughs> exactly. Um, that, that's not a healthy compromise. The deck is stacked. If you'd like to join us on this conversation, please do. The phone number is 646-378. I have to put my glasses on. 0430. That's 646-378-0430. And I think it's so important that we talk about these relationships that are um, 
not physically abusive but are terrifically abusive. Let's talk about the ways that abuse can occur if it's not hitting. What are some of the ways that, that women can be abused? Well, there's emotional abuse and verbal abuse. Um, there's also financial abuse. There's sexual abuse. Um, in my book, I, I have a chapter on spiritual abuse, um, mm-hmm. which I find really interesting. And I think that those are all the ways that are not physical, that if we really stacked it up, you know, I, I, you probably get the same question that I do a, a lot of times, which is, uh, which is worse? emotional slash verbal abuse or physical abuse, you know, as if any one of them are okay. And, and of course, all of them are horrifying, and nobody should have to put up with it even once. Uh, but if I were forced, forced, forced to choose, I would say that verbal and emotional abuse are worse than physical abuse. Um, you know, well, a broken arm will heal. The studies seem to support that. So the yeah. studies seem, uh, seem to support that, that women who have experienced both um, say that they would, you know, if they had to experience one again, they would pick the physical rather than the emotional. Because um, I, I've, I've written a book here and there too, so I always say my next book, I'm, I, someday I'm going to write a book called Sticks and Stones Can Hurt, uh, Break My Bones and Words That Will Hurt Forever. Mm, because right. those words just kind of get into your brain and they are there. Forever, you are constantly doubting yourself after experiencing something like that. You're constantly wondering, um, you know, what what you. It, it's like it destroys the equilibrium equilibrium for the woman. It, it's just con, it just con, is a devastating type of abuse. Um, and then to couple that with the fact that nobody acknowledges it as true abuse. Whoa, you know, double yeah. whammy. That's true. Tell me, you know, I, I think that you know when. When you have a broken arm, you know, um, that will heal. And sometimes when a bone, a bone is broken, it heals stronger. Uh, this is not to say anybody should get a broken bone from domestic violence. Don't misunderstand anybody who's listening. But, you know, a broken spirit, which is what happens when you are in an emotionally or verbally abusive relationship, that's just devastating. And like you said, that, that lasts forever. I've got to tell you, Heather, I'm in the broken spirit business, you know, as a therapist. And I see people who, who through relationship, whether it's a parental relationship or, or whether a romantic relationship, have been told they're fat, ugly, stupid, lazy, crazy, nobody else will ever love you, I'm the best thing that's ever going to happen to you, you're ridiculous, um, whatever it is. And that just stays and stays and just eats like a cancer in your body. And you really start to believe it. When people say, why do people, why do women stay in abusive relationships? It's not because they like it. It's not because maybe at the beginning they don't know any better, but it doesn't start off with somebody saying that you're crazy and you're stupid and and, uh, I can't stand you and you can't do this and why did you do that and and the constant criticism and and everything else and the constant crazy jealousy that makes no sense. It's because it just happens in small little nuggets and then in between times is nice. And so you're always shocked when it happens Mm -hmm. again. And, And it just starts to seep into your soul until you start believing that this is who you are. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it, it, it's, it's devastating, devastating. Yeah. And, you know, and that's reinforced constantly by people who will say things like, you know, because I, I think that most women who are, are trying to recognize that they're actually in an abusive relationship, they'll put out feelers, you know, to, to fan, friends, families. A lot of women go to clergy, um, and they just kind of, they don't, start out saying, well, this happened, this happened, and this happened. They'll put out little feelers, you know, to get the, you know, that, that whole idea of taking the stick to measure. Um, is this abuse? You know, it feels awful. There's something about this. It just feels awful. But am I overreacting? I don't know. And so they'll, they'll put out little feelers um, to see if they get any acknowledgement. And usually they don't. Usually they're told, well, this is just marriage. You have to give and take. It is a process. It is this and that and the other thing. And go back and work harder. Right. And I think for a lot of women, then it just reinforces that it's them. 
It's just them. Right, um, which is what their like, abuser has told them. You're crazy, and I'm yep. not doing anything wrong, and it's not as if I hit you. Yes, yeah, right. exactly. You, exactly. Well, tell me about economic abuse. I think that that's a hard one to understand. Um, I was trying to talk with somebody uh, a, a while ago about economic abuse, and this person said, well, everybody argues over money. Um, well, first of all, not everybody argues over money. Um, you know, um, a, a really good plan, you know, when I do premarital counseling, which I think is, is probably very important for most couples, um, it, is to have an understanding about money. Sometimes you have one person who's a saver and one person who's a spender, and, and you, that, you, you know, that really needs to be cleared up pretty quickly. Um, but economic abuse, financial abuse in in an abusive relationship is really something very different. Um, what I find is that um, even when a woman works, even if she's the only person who works, or even if she's the person who makes more money than her partner, she has to give him her paycheck, or she has to account for every single penny she spends, or she has to tell him the way that she's spending the money, or she has to hand over her paycheck and then he deposits it or he decides how it's going to be spent. Um, and, and her money really isn't her own, and she's not allowed to have her own money. And part of that is a plan, as, as we know, um, all types of abuse, including domestic violence, is about power and control. Who has the power and control? And in case of domestic violence, it's, uh, you know, it, it's the abuser. And it, there's not an equal sharing of power and control. And, and the person who's being abused, and let's face it, sometimes it's the man too, um, uh, doesn't have their own personal power or doesn't have control over uh, their life or, in this case, their money. Um, and so... Because abuse is very intentional, planned behavior, the plan is to make, let's say in this case, the woman um, emotionally and financially dependent on him. So even if she wanted to leave, she couldn't. And that to me... Okay, now as an observer, you know, as somebody just hearing you say that, I think, well, it's her paycheck, it's made out to her. Why does she have to give it to him? She can just go deposit it. Not in an abusive relationship. You know, that's that's why it's so mystifying to people who are not in an abusive relationship or don't understand the dynamics of an abusive relationship. He's not holding a gun to your head and saying, you'll give me your paycheck or I'll pull the trigger. It's all the other abuses and all the other ways that he's made you feel less than and nervous and frightened and fearful and unsure and unsteady before he starts this behavior of you're going to hand me over your paycheck. I've asked women time and time again, what would happen if you didn't do what he said? And they get this frightened expression on their face, every one of them, and say, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to find out. Well, I don't know, but I, I wouldn't want to test it. You know, so there's this threat of what's going to happen. And sometimes it's, I'm saying just in air quotes, but it's just that I don't want the fight or I just don't want the hassle or I just don't want him to raise his voice and I have to defend myself and defend myself and then nothing comes of it anyway and he always wins. But meanwhile, we've had a fight that, you know, he won't talk to me for three days, so I just give in. It's just easier to give in. Right. Yeah. Well, and we and, hear and that sometimes time time again. life can life can be made so hellish that it's just as you said easier to just go with it. You know, um, uh, Jill, we have uh, uh, a caller on the line. I'd like to go to our caller. Are you there, caller? Uh, yes. Hello. Rita from, hello. Can you hear me? This is Rita from Yes, Women's I can. Thank you for calling in. Hi. How are you? I'm fine. Do you have something you want to add to our conversation here? Well, I think. Uh, in truth, sometimes he, assuming the batterer is he, does have a gun to that to the head, and the and the gun can be um, literal, as we know, but also metaphorical, in that um, yeah, I have to get the car fixed, and otherwise. I will be able to get to work. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff 
and threats, but uh, I think that implicit in the abuse is the threat or the knowledge of the threat coming, as uh, your guest pointed out. You know, you, you know sort of kind of how it's going to go down. But there are also those uh, actual threats. I think that's yeah, think a that's very, very good point. Don't you, Heather? I think that's yes. a really good point. Yes, and sometimes the threat is um, uh, this is my house. These are my children. Uh, if you want to leave, you can leave. Uh, you'll be out on the street, um, and I'll have the kids. There's a lot of threats about children, for example, when you have children with the person. And even if the person is the stepfather, let's say, uh, and it's your children by birth, um, there's threats that, you know, I'll take the kids and, and I'll leave and you'll never see them again. There's a lot of threats about children, and a lot of times those are true. You know, um, it, when the the final point is the kids, the, the the abuser knows that you will do anything to keep your children. And a lot of times women stay because of children for many reasons. One of them is seeing how he can be, if the, if the batterer is a he, the abuser is a he, um, how he can be. Which in 90% of the cases it is. So, you know, let's exactly. just be upfront about that. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and sometimes it's not physical abuse. Sometimes it's demeaning comments and you're so stupid and you're so lazy and, and you're ridiculous and you'll never amount to anything. Just the same things that, that, he, that he tells the mom. Um, but women feel that if they stay with him, at least they can try to control the situation or they have the impression that they can control the abuse, whereas they believe that if they leave that a judge will award um, you know, some custody, sometimes 50% custody, to the father, and then they won't be there. They, the mom won't be there um, to, to try to mediate and try to protect the children. So as your caller was and saying... And you know, that's a, hun- that's a very, very um, significant and accurate um, fear. Yes, it, it, absolutely. It happens more and more and more uh, where uh, the custody is given to the abuser, even if it's documented abuse. Um, We had a judge on from Denver last week, um, and we were talking about that, and and, um, she's actually going to be on again next week, I believe, on uh, that whole issue and uh, trying to get her idea of why. Why would a judge give custody to an abuser? Um, And her explanation as a judge is that sometimes even though there's abuse there, that's still the better option for caring for the child. Well, you know, we Why is it that. ever a better option? I don't understand that, that idea. Well, her, Why I'm is abuse a better option her. than what? Well, I'm, I'm speaking for her, and I shouldn't be doing that, but um, what she said to me was that um, sometimes the choice has to be made between a woman who clearly um, is... is um, incapable of managing her own life, let alone somebody else's. I'm going to sneeze. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, that brings up a whole other discussion about uh, uh, sort of the the effect of abuse um, and what happens um, even when it's not physical is that a, a lot of times a woman does become you know, psychologically damaged. Um, and and that's yes. part of the profile, and that that's part of, of what happens. You know, I, I'm on this quest. When I retire, I've decided that I want to do really a, um, an investigative research study to find out if when you look at, um, you know, psychological deterioration, let's say, uh, a lot of depression, anxiety, and a woman in an abusive relationship, if the abuser chose her because she was depressed, anxious, um, had, you know, different kinds of uh, emotional difficulties, or because she would be easier, let's say, to abuse, or if she was healthy when she was, you know, first in the relationship and then became that way in the relationship. And so, you know, when... Right. So that would you know, be a great you, research project, I think. I, I think so too. I think so too yeah. because Paula, I think it, are it's you still with us. Paula, uh, yes, are you still I am. there? Um, okay. So I would, did you want to uh, add any other comments? Pardon? Yes. 
I would add to your, your research project, or maybe you can get a, a colleague to add um, the uh, rate in which children improve in their outlook, school attendance, health, et cetera, et cetera, when they leave the abusive relationship because mm. I've seen very little, I don't I actually haven't seen any, on the impact of mom leaving. It's almost like they're terrified of condoning the, uh, the, the victim's departure from, and it's usually the father or the stepfather, and well, I have I've never seen it. You know that's that's a, that's an interesting um, concept, Rita, and and I have to say that just anecdotally, in dealing with a whole lot of kids in abusive relationships, um, and and my work um, at the shelter, and and, and continuing um, sort of off the grid work with uh, with shelters, is that initially. When um, when the parents split up or mom leaves, let's say, um, they feel guilty a lot of the times. Um, they feel frightened. They still feel frightened. There's a, sort of this residue of fear. Um, there's a, a feeling of uh, of guilt that oh, you know, daddy's alone now, and we've hurt daddy, and maybe daddy's gone to jail sometimes too. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's my fault or, or they, um, or they're mad at mommy for putting daddy in jail or mad at mommy because now daddy's going to be alone. But when they get some help with this, um, almost all children feel better, feel relieved. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of sleep difficulties that happen in children in abusive relationships because they're waiting for the next thing to happen, which oftentimes happens when parents think that children are asleep, and they rarely are. Um, but, you know, you have all kinds of difficulties that start clearing up. But certainly kids, when they get out of abusive relationships, they need some help with it. Anecdotally, I think that what happens is um, so many of those children go through a year or two of even more intense um, uh, drama and, and trauma um, while the divorce is settling out and the custody issues are being settled. And um, then after things calm down, especially if they're with the parents that they have the most trust with, um, then I think they actually get a lot better, but that's anecdotal on my part. Well, I have um, I, I have a, a couple of girls that I see whose father was actually in jail um, for domestic violence, and um, the, the kids were ordered to go see the father in jail. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the domestic violence happened in front of in front of these girls, and and the children were ordered to go see the father in jail, and and the mother and the girls came to me and and were saying, "Do we really have to do this? We don't want to do this." and and um you know they had a lot of memories about their father uh and, and what he had done to the mother and ways that he had terrorized them through the mother and um and and it was just it was criminal to me uh, and then after he was released from jail um he was awarded i can't remember now the uh, percentage of custody and, and certainly visitation of these children, and they never wanted to go with with them, with the father. And the mother was really in the hot seat because she she didn't want the girls to go if they didn't want to go. They were frightened yeah. of him, and um, and if she didn't force the girls to go with the father, then she was going to be in trouble legally. Yep. It, it's a Absolutely. bad situation. No, it's so it's a terrible situation. Yeah, that's sometimes and, uh, the gun and family to the courts head. Are, are just, you know, I, I'm, family courts are just um, a, a horrible situation right now, uh, depending on the state you live in, depending on the county, uh, depending on the education level of the court personnel or the judges. It's just a terrible situation in family courts. Um, they They seem to, and again, I'm not involved in the courts, but it seems to me that family courts put the right of the father before the safety of the children. No, I agree with my you. Opinion. I, I agree with you, and I, and I think you know, as your caller was saying, sometimes a me, it's a metaphorical gun to the head, and and I think that's certainly a big one. Mhm. Exactly. 
Well, let's go on and talk a little bit about spiritual abuse. What on earth do we mean by spiritual abuse? Well, a lot of times um, you might be a woman who has um, a very strong faith, whatever that faith is, and when you are involved with an abuser, he wants to be your God. There will be no other gods before him. Uh, because for many people, if uh, without their faith, they're really a shell of a person. And that's, by design, the abuser wants to take that away from you. He wants to take away your feeling of strength and and power and knowing and and comfort that faith uh, may give you um, because he wants to break you down. You may have um, very strong moral and religious ideas and ethical ideas um, that, that are brought on by your faith. But if he can take your faith away from you, if he can take your religion away from you, then then you really are a broken person and he can do with you whatever he wants. And that's by design. So uh, a lot of times um, you let's say, may want to go to church on Sunday morning. But he has some sort of pressing emergency that needs your attention. I find this a lot with teenagers um, where, let's say, the girl goes to church with her, her family at uh, you know 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings. At, at 8.30, he texts her that he has this horrible crisis, horrible emergency, and she's the only person who would understand. And so she's on the phone with him, you know, and, and the parents are saying, come on, let's go, let's go. And she's saying, no, I can't, I can't, you know, he's going to kill himself, or his parents hate him, or, you know, his friends did this, or, you know, I, I can't this way, you know, and this is by, this is by design. So he he wants to be her only influence and take this moral foundation and this moral structure away from her. I have um, a friend, I've told the story before, who was very involved in her church. Her husband was not involved in any church. They had, a, uh, he was very abusive. They had a pivotal moment. She decided to leave. And she went to her minister um, and talked about this. And the minister said the church would be there for her. And then she had a protection order against her husband. And then in about two weeks, the husband showed up at her church. And when she got there, she went over to the minister and she said, he can't be here, I have a protection order. And the minister said, well, he wants to repent. We can't oh turn gosh. him away. We oh, can't yeah, turn yeah. him away. And she said, but I have a protection order. I can't be near him. I can't be within, you know, 100 yards of him. Well, um, you know, we can't turn him away. He's seeking God now in his life, and you know. And so she ended up having to go to a different church. Yes. Yeah, one that she oh, hadn't been to for years and years, and you know, I mean, it to me, it was just how how could this minister do that to her? Yes, and and you know, and I think for your listeners to understand that most likely, not knowing this individual, but most likely, this person was not seeking repentance and was not seeking God, but this was a plan on his part to be near her and also to spook her and to say, you know what, I, uh, there's nothing that you can do to keep me away. There's no yeah. law that you, can, that you can give me that's going to keep me away. I am above laws. I am above the law. And, um, and it's a shame that her minister did not understand this, that he wasn't there to seek God. He was there to seek her and to intimidate her. Exactly. To show or see, I control. I have the control. Right. Um, I, I think that that's one of the reasons I always um, feel that um, these groups of fathers, some of whom I'm sure have gotten a, a, a rough deal. I mean, you know, you can't go to court without somebody getting a rough deal. However, there's a, a real vocal group groups of men who are just so adamant against the courts. They just can't bear the courts. And I believe it's because for the first time, there's somebody who can make them do something they don't want to do. Right. Well, and abusers don't want to be told what to do, that's for sure. No. Uh-uh. It's absolutely, you know. And so when they go to court and a judge is there and they can't manipulate the judge enough, then they're actually forced to do something they don't want to do, and it, they are absolutely livid about that. Right. And I think that comes out with the issues of child support, child custody, um, 
You know, I mean, it, it's a very complicated issue. Okay, so we talked about economic abuse. We talked about spiritual abuse. What about, um, and I think we've been talking all along about emotional abuse. What were, what were, uh, there were a couple of other ways you said that um, a relationship can be abusive. Oh, sexual abuse for sure. And I think that, that um, women that are married don't understand that uh, the idea of marital rape that um, it's not your wifely duty, it's not your wifely obligation, um, sexual intimacy. Um, It's a choice, and your body doesn't belong to your husband. Your body doesn't belong to your partner. Your body belongs to you, and you have the right to say yes or no. And no doesn't mean maybe. No means no. And if if your husband or your, your partner is is having um, sex with you in ways that feel uncomfortable or feel demeaning or uh, want sex uh, and demand sex, I guess I should say, not wants, but demands sex and takes sex um, when you are not willing or when you've said no or when you don't want to, you're allowed to just not want to. There doesn't have to be a reason. There it doesn't have to be I have my period, I have a headache, I've had a stressful day. You can just not want to. And that's okay enough. You don't have to give twenty five reasons. Um even if he's a guy who goes and and uh if you say no, not right now, and he goes and he pouts and he gives you the silent treatment and he withdraws emotionally and he punishes you with silence, um or, or he, you know, won't have a conversation with you. He won't look your way. That's not right. That's not okay. And just because you're married doesn't mean that you are obligated sexually whenever he wants it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think a lot of women just assume that it's not worth fighting over. It's not worth the the consequences. Just do do it and be done with it. Well, exactly. Um, Right. Yeah, They're yeah. saying, you know, what's 15 minutes out of my life? Um, mm-hmm. If it's going to uh, avoid a fight or it's going to um, avoid conflict or the silent treatment, you know, it's, it's just however however long it takes. Um, but a lot of times women don't understand until it's too late what that does to your soul, that you you just feel like an object. You know, sex is a wonderful thing when when there's intimacy and sharing and connection and and respect and you know all these wonderful things and it can be a devastating thing when none of those things are involved and women don't understand until later until they're out of the abusive relationship what just giving in and feeling like an object and not feeling cherished and loved and feeling demeaned what that did to their spirit what that did to their soul We've talked about these different types of of abuse. Um, what are the consequences of some of those? I mean, there are different scenarios. If a if a woman does not recognize that this is abuse, also if she recognizes that it's abuse but chooses to stay for whatever reason, um, and if she leaves. So we've got three different options here uh, for women who have been in these kinds of abusive situations. How about women who... Um, don't recognize it as abuse. If, if it's not recognized as abuse, is it still abusive? Well, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and there's nobody there to hear it, you know, <laughs> just to make a sound, I guess. Um, you know, uh, I have actually other two uh, handy-dandy ways to know if you're in an abusive relationship. And for your listeners, they might just have an aha moment right here if they don't recognize that they're in an abusive relationship. And let me be clear, I don't see abuse in every corner, and I don't think every abuse relationship is, is, is abusive. But, you know, I have a, a different perspective seeing a lot of abusive relationships, of course. I think that if you're in a relationship where you're crying a lot, um, where sometimes you're on the phone and you're begging and pleading and apologizing for things you've never done, if you are in person and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, or uh, he's saying things to you that, that really hurt you, that really wound you, and you're crying, you're in an abusive relationship. You're not just in sort of a, a little bit of an unhealthy, maybe we're straddling the fence on whether you know, it, it's a little creepy or not. No, that's an abusive relationship. When you think about it, Heather, 
you know, a relationship, a healthy relationship, should make you feel better about the world and should contribute to your well-being and, and how you feel about yourself and, and help boost your self-confidence and, and, and make the world look better. If you're crying... You add to your life, not take away from it. That's exactly right. And so if you're in a relationship where you're crying, that's an abusive relationship. I can't be more clear than that. Also, if you're in an abuse uh, in a relationship where you're frightened of your partner, and let me just say this with capital letters, everything else that I'm going to say after this, you may not be afraid that he's going to smack you, that you're going to have a black eye, but you're afraid of your partner's temper. You're afraid to make him angry. You're afraid to have a different opinion. You're afraid to say no, no to no to sex, no no to anything. Um, you're afraid to, to speak your mind. You're afraid of what he might do if dot, dot, dot. If you are afraid of your partner, you're in an abusive relationship. I can't say that clearly enough, and I can't say it strongly enough. You should never, ever, for a single moment, be afraid of your partner, ever, for any reason. If you have fear in your relationship, that's an abusive relationship. So those are two ways that uh, I think are easy to detect whether or not you're in an abusive relationship. Okay, easy enough. I mean, that's clear enough. Um, and I think that there are a lot of women who, um, as you said, don't acknowledge or don't recognize that they're in that relationship until you start thinking about some of those things. Um, well, right, because, you know, the, the all the other signs, the isolation, the jealousy, you know, he's... He, irrationally and unreasonably jealous, he accuses you of things, that that all goes to the fear aspect. And um, so if you're afraid to have friends, if you're afraid to go to the mall because he's going to interrogate you afterwards, if you're afraid to uh, buy a kitchen towel because he's going to interrogate you and, and, and say, you're so stupid, you know, we have three more kitchen towels, why why do you need another towel, you're so wasteful, you're, you, you know, you're you're so horrible that's that's fear and mm-hmm. you're in an abusive relationship amazing amazing what about and i i'm i'm kind of diverting just a little here um what about if the husband has never hit you but he hits walls or he um sweeps things off the table or you know that kind of thing that's right. kind well, of physical but not really physical it's it's a it's a very very good indicator. However, when we do profiles of abusers, that that's an indicator of possible physical abuse. It's a very very strong indicator of um, future physical abuse. It's not <laughs> to, to use the example that we were using um, at the first part of our conversation, Heather. That's not normal. So it's not normal when you're angry, when you're stressed, when you're frustrated to punch a hole in a wall. That's not normal. Um, it's not normal when you feel that way to take your arm and sweep everything off a desk or a table. That's not a normal way to process stress and frustration. And if you're in a relationship where you have somebody who does that, I would tell you very strongly that there may be future um, physical abuse that follows. Yeah. Because yeah, what happens is... You know, it, the, the brain is a, an amazing, amazing thing. But what it doesn't know is it doesn't know the difference between a wall and a face. It can know a whole lot of things, but it can't know the difference between a wall and a face. Because when your brain processes, I feel stressed, through, so I punch through something, and when I punch through something, it relieves my stress, that's a very, very powerful force in your brain. So now it punches through a wall, it feels better. Now it punches through a wall again, it feels better. Now it punches through a wall again, it feels better. Pretty soon it's going to punch through your jaw. It's a very strong indicator. Yeah. Okay, let's get back to our consequences of of living with um, this kind of non-physical domestic violence or any domestic violence for that case. Um, Okay, so for the the woman who doesn't acknowledge that she is in... um, um, 
an abusive relationship. We've got our little our guidelines from you, and we've also um, got uh, some sources of help. And I always give out the DV hotline: one eight hundred seven nine nine seven two three three. One eight hundred seven nine nine. 7233. If you think you are in an abusive relationship, call that number. They will help hook you up with services and um, uh, groups and advocates and all sorts of people to help you sort it out. And you don't have to leave the domestic the, the abuser. Sometimes it's a process. That leaving is a process. You don't have to be leaving at that moment in order to go to one of these groups. They can help you sort it out and get a safety plan and all that kind of stuff. So then we've got the woman who is in the um, abusive relationship, but for whatever reasons, maybe her children, maybe economics, chooses to stay. Mm-hmm. What effect is this having on her as she's choosing to stay? She's making the decision that, yes, I'm uh, as bad as this is, I'm better here, and the kids are better here, or whatever, um, than if I leave. You know, that's an interesting question, um, about making that decision. I see a lot of women who put a timeline on their misery. Um, so they'll say when uh, when the baby gets out of diapers or when, um, when uh, you know, the youngest child goes to school full-time or when uh, the youngest one or the oldest one graduates high school or whatever it is. They put a timeline, uh, you know, when I lose 30 pounds, whatever it is. Uh, they put a timeline on uh, when they're when they're going to leave. Uh, sometimes they hit that mark, and most oftentimes they don't. They just set an, another timeline. So the consequences certainly are depression, and devastating and crippling depression. Um, and I see that very, very frequently in my practice. Uh, a whole lot of anxiety. And um, anxiety is really, in my mind, about fear of loss in the future, um, sadness is about what's happening now, um, but anxiety is, is future loss. And it's not irrational. It's not irrational anxiety. There are a lot of reasons that you've been given in your relationship to believe that that more losses and more insults and more tragedies will occur. So it's not an irrational anxiety. It's it's a, a for real anxiety. Um, yes. You know, uh, parasuicidal behavior is another one. Um, OCD, you know, self, self-destructive, I would say, self-destructive, um, I would put in the category of parasuicidal behaviors, but self-destructive behaviors. So whether um, it's anorexia or bulimia or cutting or burning or drinking or drug use um, or gambling or shopping or whatever medicates you, um, I see a lot of that. I see a lot of um, obsessive compulsive OCD behaviors because that's um, attempting to put some control around um, around your life. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's certainly consequences to children um, staying in, a, in an abuser of relationship um, are extreme. And uh, uh, you know, we could go on and on and have an entire show about the consequences of keeping your children uh, in an abusive relationship. And of course, you know, as we mentioned, a lot of women stay in abusive relationships because they're afraid uh, of what will happen if if they don't uh, of the father having um, custody um, of the of the children without them being there to protect them. But also the idea that they're being given, is, as you were saying, whether it's societal or whether it's familial or whether it's religiously, um, that you know you you made your bed, uh, now you, you you know you sleep in it, and you made a vow, you took a vow, and you need to you need to make it work. Um, or you're afraid that you're going to be shunned by your family or your society or or your church. Um, or he's going to, to say that you're crazy, psycho, you know, whatever. And he's so convincing and so charming and people like him so much that they're going to believe it. Um, and, and a lot of times that, that really, really does happen. Um, so there's oh, yeah. a lot of fear, right? Yeah. Oh, right. absolutely. Absolutely. Um yeah, it, it, there, I think that that is the biggest thing in any of these scenarios is do you have fear in the pit of your stomach as you walk around your daily life? And if you do, there's something wrong. It's not just you being, um, 
overreacting. If you actually feel fear, um, then it's time to acknowledge and recognize where what you are in and and uh, what you need to do about it. But I do believe, I've seen it over and over again, where the courts do give custody, um, do give uh, 50-50 decision-making. I mean, you can have a protection order with your spouse, and the courts will still require the two of you to discuss child, you know, to come to agreement on child-rearing issues. Um, even with a protection order, I mean, hello, you know. <laughs> right, right. Um, they'll, they'll, with a protection order, even, they'll, they'll um, mandate parenting co-parenting um therapy it's what do you, you know i'm i'm anxious to listen to your uh, to listen to your judge when she's she's on again and and, and um and, and hear about that because it's just so it's it's antithetical to to everything that we know yes it is and yet from the judicial standpoint and i you know and i don't mean to um you know, put her on the spot uh, uh, but from a judicial standpoint they're looking at different things than um we look at and in order to understand what they're looking at, I mean, one of the things that I got from talking with her is that demeanor has a lot to do with their decision making. And so, demeanor if you're frazzled, of, oh, if you the, go in and you're a woman, in and, front and, of them. I see. Yeah. So, typically, a woman who's been is trying to divorce from a from a, an abusive situation is terrified. She's frazzled. She's living under this fear that yes, maybe he can get away with the stuff he's threatening. Blah 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 blah. And um, she appears before a court, and she looks frazzled, and she looks that that can work against her, big time, big time. Wow, and, against and we, you know, and we know that women will say he doesn't, he doesn't have to even say anything. He can give me a yeah. look that just slices me into ten pieces, and so they go into court. And, you know, he's wearing his suit and tie, and yep. um, he's being very pleasant, but he gives her the look, and that just yep. slays her. Yep. Yep. Brings her down. Right. So anyway, well, yeah, I, I think that the important thing, I, I can't believe our time is almost over. Um, I still have a caller on our line. A caller, are you still there? I am. How are you? Okay. I'm fine. Um, do you have any final comments as you've listened to us chat about this issue? Well, I think, you know, as um, a battered woman survivor, the um, the reality is that that pit in, that ang- in your stomach, your apprehension, um, stays with you. It's, a, it's an emotional habit. But it's... It, it, and, and so, I mean, many years later, I still, it's easy for me to have that apprehension, that anxiety. And um, so my thought is that the shorter time, and I, I like the part about make, sort of making a deal, I'll leave when the, my youngest one goes to school full time. Um, the shorter the time you spend in that, abusive relationship could positively impact your reaction and what you live with for the rest of your life. Yeah, I think that's a very astute point. I do caution, though, after all the the things that I've heard and seen and spoken to about family court, I think it is a real legitimate fear on the part of of a woman who's leaving that situation. I don't think she can discount the fact that, you know, court is going to be an, another huge hurdle. Um, right. And, I, I wish and it weren't. Heather, we talked about the, the news media and their failure, well, in to say, to understand when women are murdered that yeah. they're, when they're most at risk, and we know that they're most at risk initially after they leave. So there's also a very reasonable apprehension that you won't live through the experience. Um, And and let alone the courts um, harming both you and your children, putting them at higher risk. So, yeah, there's a lot of reasons that any uh, reasonable person would think very carefully before they made the move. I think think that's a, a, yeah, it's a very good point. I, I, I think that maybe you know a final idea of, uh, about all of this uh, everything that that we've discussed sure. today heather is you know for your listeners to remember that love is a behavior 
It's not really just a feeling. It's the way somebody good, treats good, you. Good. And on that you know, note, we only have 20 seconds left. Yeah. I, I, I hope Bye. you will come back and join us sometime, Jill. I usually close our show with a quote, and this quote is from uh, Tina Chen, who wrote North of Beautiful. Silence, too, can be torture. Thank you for joining us. Come in next week where we hopefully will be talking with our judge again from Colorado. Thank you for joining us.